Who you are shapes how you live. Let me repeat that again. Who you are shapes how you live. Our identities show themselves in our actions, our thinking, our opinions, our preferences, and our behavior. They're all tied to our identity. Take, for example, an Englishman. If I were an Englishman, I would probably prefer football or soccer over American football. But because part of my identity is that I'm an American, I like my football with touchdowns and tackles. If I were an Englishman, I'd also probably have an accent. But I'm from the Midwest, where we are known for having the most neutral accent. Take, for example, warm culture people. They act a certain way. In these cultures, it's common to have three generations living at home at all times. Grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, kids, always, every day, every week, at home. I had a friend in seminary who was from India, and he told me that that was what life was like. But not only was it three generations living at home, There was a party every night for dinner because you always had more family over and you always had guests over from town. Every night, living in community, getting to know people. It's a little different in New England, right? You guys are New Englanders through and through. How often does that happen? I'm out out evangelizing and sometimes I'll say, hey, would you like to come over for dinner? And they're like, what? So obviously, I try to be more tactful in my approach. But you get the point. Who you are shapes how you live. But it's not just the cultural aspect to your identity that shapes you. It's your generational identity, too. I remember being a kid and looking at photo albums. Those don't exist anymore. But I was looking at my mom and my aunts and my grandma when they were in the 80s. Now, you know where I'm going with this. You can imagine what they looked like. What kind of hair did ladies in the 80s have? You can answer. Big old hair. Bigger the better. Vertical. I remember looking at a picture of my mom, and I was a little younger, so I wasn't respectful in this moment, but I said, Mom, what were you thinking? And she said to me, sweetie, this is what we did back then. This is who we were. We were ladies of the 80s. Who you are shapes how you live. The same is true for Christians. Who we are in Christ shapes how we live in this world. And the Bible speaks to this over and over again. And one of the best places in Scripture to look at who we are is 1 Peter. Now, because we haven't been in 1 Peter, I think it's really helpful for us to understand what's happening in this letter. The believers in Peter's day are being persecuted. Life is hard and it's confusing And they're fighting to live different than the culture around them. It's becoming even more challenging for them. And here, Peter challenges believers to be God's people and live like his people no matter the circumstance. The struggle hasn't ever really changed for Christians, has it? Being God's people in a place where we don't belong. We face life as foreigners and exiles in enemy territory in every generation. And what's so sweet is that God says the same thing to his people in every generation. He's always there to speak to us. He promises, he promises to deliver us, and he commands us to live out our identity in the meantime. It's really simple. 
He promises to come for us. Be who I've made you to be in the meantime. He spoke this way to Israel in the days of Moses. He spoke this way to Judah in the days of the exile. He spoke to Christians this way in Peter's day, and now he speaks the same word to us, us who are in a strange new world. In his word, he reminds us over and over and over again of his promise to save, of our identity by his grace, and our purpose in this place. And this constant reminder is because it's incredibly difficult to hold on to our identity when we're surrounded by those who walk in darkness. We face the temptation every day to act like we used to, to lose what makes us God's people. It's like the Englishmen I mentioned just a moment ago. Let's just say they move to America. They're in enemy territory. And being here long enough, they can start to lose what makes them English. They might lose their accent. They might begin to prefer coffee over tea. And God forbid, they might lose their love for rugby and soccer and cricket. We live in a day where unfortunately many in the church, they're not clear on who they are And so they start to lose what makes them distinct and they begin to struggle, struggle with the sins they used to commit before Christ. They struggle with living in this broken world. They're disoriented. They don't know what to do next. They don't know what it means to live missionally. If we're not clear on who we are, then we will not know how to live in this world. And so 1 Peter is so helpful to us this morning. His goal is to remind us of who we are so that we don't lose who we are as we live in enemy territory. You guys know this. We don't belong here. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're only here for a mission. So I want us to look this morning at who we are so that we're clear on that, that we might live our lives faithfully to that identity. This morning, we're going to answer the question, what does it mean to be God's people? We've been in the book of Titus, but we're taking a break because I think we, we could use some time drilling down on what was said in Titus 2.14. It says there that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. There's so much packed into that verse. I want to use this morning to drill down on the significance and the implication of being God's people. And I want to do that through the lens of 1 Peter. So in order to answer that question, you can see in your sermon outline, we'll be looking at number one, becoming God's people. We need to know how we become God's people in order to be his people. Number two, being God's people. And three, being God's people on mission as those redeemed to be zealous for good works. So let's jump into 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. If you're using the Pew Bible, the one underneath your chair, you'll find it on page 1014. 1014. 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'm going to start in verse 22. Follow along as I read. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, 
and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Peter says here, we have become God's people by the imperishable seed of his word. We are born again. The Bible teaches us that we're not physically born into God's people. You may be the child of Christian parents, but that does not mean that you were born a Christian. The Bible says we're born again in order to be his people. It requires a new birth, which gives us a new identity and a new purpose. And this word by which we are born again, verse 25, is the good news. It's the gospel that makes us born again. The good news that though our sins are many, his mercy is more through the atoning work of Christ. We are people saved by the gospel. And Peter says in verse 22, in order to love one another, love the people born again from an, earnestly from a pure heart. But notice that we're not just a people saved by the gospel. We're sanctified by the gospel. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. So putting away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Notice in those verses that in our loving one another by putting away all these sins, we are to long for the pure spiritual milk. Now, what is that milk? I love how the King James and New American Standard helps us to interpret it. Those read, the pure milk of the word. The milk is the word. And the word is the gospel, according to Peter. Peter. We are to long for the gospel preached. So it's not just the gospel that saves us, it's what sanctifies us. We find it to be the nourishing word that sustains us spiritually, and it sanctifies us. Sanctification is gradual growing in Christ-likeness and righteousness. As those saved by the gospel, we know that it's the gospel that gradually grows us according to Christ. So we become God's people by the gospel, saved and sanctified, Notice that not everyone is a part of God's people in this passage. You have to believe in Christ alone in order to become one of God's people. Look at verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the, stoner, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Here we see that they stumble over the gospel. Some do this. Some are saved and sanctified by it, but others stumble over this Savior that God has sent for his people. They reject Christ because he's not who they want him to be. And so they stumble so as to fall to their eternal destruction. Now notice how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility can be mentioned in a single sentence without tension. These people stumble to their judgment because they disobey the gospel. That means that people are responsible for their response to the gospel. But notice yet, God is in control of all things. They disobey because they were destined to. Now, God's sovereignty isn't just over the disbelief of the lost. 
It's over the belief of Christians as well. Notice verse 9. His chosen race. His sovereignty is over our faith as well. Now, by way of application, when we read verses like these, that salvation is all of grace, we should have incredibly thankful hearts. He saved us. I was so grateful for Pastor Stephen how he brought that out last week. He saved us. We are God's people because he's given us the grace to believe. Our hearts are to praise God for the ability to believe in it. We have become his solely by the grace of Christ. That's why we sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Oh, brothers and sisters, how precious did that grace appear the hour we first believed. So we become God's people by the gospel to be his people in this world. Let's look now at number two, being God's people. Look with me at verses nine and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. These verses stand at the heart of First Peter. They lay out our identity as the people of God, so I'd like to slow down now and unpack those identities that he gives us there, those four that we have in Christ. Peter starts here by saying that believers in Christ are a chosen race. What a precious thought that is, to know that that's who you are, God's chosen race. Have you ever meditated on that thought, that you're chosen by God? That's how God thinks of you. Now, Peter isn't just pulling out random phrases to make believers feel special. He's using God's word in the Old Testament to instruct us on our identity as God's people. Throughout the Bible, God has been revealing who his true people are through, uh, through prophets like Moses and Isaiah and others. And Peter made a profound assertion back in chapter 1. He said that through the prophets, God that is, spoke to Israel but it was ultimately for a people yet to come. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, it says, It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that, you have, that have now been announced to you through those who've preached the good news to you. What Peter is saying is that the prophets knew that they were ultimately prophesying to a people yet to come. They knew that they were referring to the new covenant when they were prophesying. Like Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, those prophecies fostered hope for Israel right then and there, but they knew it was for a people yet to come, for the people of the new covenant. All of the Bible crescendos to the establishing of that covenant by the death and resurrection of Christ. And so all the Bible is pointing toward Christ and Christ's people. 
That's why Peter is grabbing this language from the Old Testament. It's because these truths ultimately apply to us, the people of the new covenant. So Peter's using the word to instruct God's people on who they are. And he starts by saying that we are a chosen race. We see this language in Deuteronomy 7, Moses speaking of the people of Israel. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. Deuteronomy 10, 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belongs heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth and all that is in it. Yet, the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples. God has been speaking this in every generation so that we would know who we are. God owns everything. He cares for and sustains everything, yet he has a particular love for a people, a chosen people whom he has set his heart to love. And what is pictured in ethnic Israel in those verses, it comes to its full expression in the race that God has chosen. A people of every tribe, every tongue, and every race. Though everyone belongs to him, he's set his heart in love on those who believe. Those who are in Christ. That's who you are. You're chosen. Now, it's not because he had to choose you. It's not like gym class where the coach picks team captains and everybody's got to have someone on their team. He's not going around going, oh, okay, you're the last one left. You're on my team, Garrett. No, it's not like gym class. He wants us. He chose us. It's not like that with God. You are chosen by God. The Lord says it this way in Isaiah 43. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. By God's grace, we are a chosen race. Now, this doesn't disregard the traits of skin color, our, our nationalities, or our ethnicities, but it does mean we have one trait, one far greater trait in common. We believe in Christ. That's who we are. Now, this should go without saying, but because of the culture we live in, I think it's important to know that this is not an individual identity. We are God's chosen race. Our identity is communal. You, individually, are among God's chosen race, God's chosen people. That's important because that means his people are our people now. His family is our family now. That means that who we are as chosen people shapes how we live. That means we live together as a people who were once of a different people. What do I mean by that? I mean that we choose to make God's people our people and to live in community with them. Let me give you an example. We get a picture of this in the book of Ruth. There was a famine in Judah 
in the days of the judges, there's a husband and a wife, Elimelech and Naomi. They leave Judah, they go to Moab, and their two sons marry Moabite women. Well, over the course of 10 years there in Moab, Elimelech dies and the two sons die, leaving only Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth. You guys know the story well. Naomi says, I'm going to go back to Judah. So ladies, please go back to your father's house. May God give you husbands. But, so Orpah goes, but what does Ruth do? She clings to Naomi. Naomi insists that she go back to the people of her race. But Ruth says one of the most incredible things in all of Scripture. She says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Do you hear that? Ruth, a Moabite by race, having become acquainted with the God of the Bible through this family, now by faith is saying, I'm not going back to my people. No, your God is my God now. Your people, my people. She makes this race more important, more of a priority than her biological race. That's what happened when God, that's what happens when God changes your heart. As he has chosen you, now you choose his people over those who used to be your people. God's people are your people. His family is your family now. Jesus said it this way. As he was teaching a crowd about the kingdom of God, his physical family tried to stop him, and this is how he responds. My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Those who've obeyed the gospel word with belief are now our people. Brothers and sisters, do you see how who we are shapes how we live? We are God's chosen people now who live together. Number two, he says that we're a royal priesthood. We are royal in that we belong to the king of kings and we serve as his priests in this world. Now, just because God's people are now our people, we don't leave the world when we believe. No, we're in the world. We're in the lives of the lost so that we can be a priest of our king to them. Here, Peter draws from Exodus 19. Just before Israel received the Ten Commandments, God speaks through Moses, reminding them of his grace and deliverance from Egypt. And he says this, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. Now, it's helpful to know what the role of a priest is. The priest stands between God and man, and they mediate that relationship. Priests are to be knowledgeable of their God, who he is, what his heart is like, and they know what he requires of people. That's the role of God to men. Now, the role of men to God is that of prayer, lifting up souls to the only one who can save and cleanse people of their sins. So as priests of the king, we speak on behalf of God. We speak the gospel to men. And then we pray on behalf of people to God. 
Now I gotta pause for a moment. How are you doing in knowing God and his heart? How are you doing at sharing that knowledge with others? How are you doing in your role as a priest to make Christ known and what it means to obey the gospel? I'm asking, how are you doing at your evangelism and discipleship? If your answer is, I'm not really doing that at all, or definitely not where it should be, I wonder if you've lost sight of our identity as a royal priesthood. I wonder if that's the actual issue. That this is who we are, that's who God made us to be. Royal priests share the gospel and pray for those to come to faith. This is why it's so important to know who you are because who we are shapes how we live. It's so important for you and I to really get what the Bible says about our identity because it shapes who we are and it also will be what we give an account for one day on judgment. Now, God's criteria shouldn't catch us off guard on that day because God has been speaking to us over and over again of what it's going to be like on judgment day. He's, he's like that teacher in high school who gives you all of the questions and answers before the test. You guys like that kind of teacher, right? That's the one I loved in high school. You know exactly what's coming. You don't have to be surprised. God's exactly like that. The day of judgment won't be a surprise quiz for us. It's as simple as, did you live as the people I made you to be? My grace worked in your life to change you, give you a new identity. Did you live out who I made you to be? Can you see how if we're clear on who we are, we'll be more faithful in how we live? Notice also that number three, we are a holy nation. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. We are a set-apart people. God used this language in Exodus 19 as well. We are made distinct from all the other people of the earth to be his holy nation. That means that we are categorically holy, which means now we are holy in our conduct. Peter, a chapter earlier, calls us to be holy in our conduct because of who our father is. Just as many of us have children or parents where we could say, she has her, mother eye, her mother's eyes or he has his father's height. Our father in heaven is holy. And so Peter says in chapter one, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Now this has massive implications for how we live if we understand this identity. Believers, believers aren't trying to be holy all on their own. We're not trying to white knuckle it. God has made us holy in Christ. In coming to Christ, we've become new creations. The old is passing away. Ezekiel 36, 26 says that we've had our old hearts ripped from our chest. God has given us a new heart that throbs with affection for him and obedience to his commandments. It also says that we've received the Holy Spirit who now causes us to walk in God's statutes and to be careful to obey his rules. We are a holy nation because of what he's done to us. And in that holiness that we've been set apart by, we now live in holiness. Do you see the connection? 
We are holy, and now we can live holy. Our position in Christ means we can practically live out our identity. Not perfectly, but progressively. Remember, sanctification is the gradual growing in righteousness. Praise God that it's not perfection, because none of us would make it, right? There would be no believers. We would all fall short on the last day. However, there must be growth. Jesus said it this way, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. If you're here today, and you're trying to put your sins to death, and you're seeing no victory, no gradual growth in righteousness, then I want you to ask yourself, have I ever really been set apart by grace? Have I ever really been set apart as holy through Christ? Only those who've been set free in Christ, set apart by him, can live holy. Friend, if your sin is kicking the snot out of you, then you are white-knuckling your holiness rather than God's grace working through his spirit in you. What you need to do is not try harder but at this very moment, to come to Christ and plead, have mercy on me, O God, and set me apart by your love. When who you are is changed, then how you live will change. Do you see how our identity as a holy people shows itself in holiness? Who you are shapes how you live. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Number four, we are a people for his own possession. Chapter two, verse nine right there. Here, Peter is pulling again from Exodus 19. And he's doing this to show us that just as Israel was delivered from their enslavement in Egypt to be God's treasured possession, you and I have been delivered from our enslavement to sin by the precious blood of Christ to be God's treasured possession for now and forevermore. What an incredible thought that you're treasured by God. When you think of your identity, do you see yourselves as God's treasured possession? Last Sunday, many of us tried to get to church when all that snow was coming down. That was not fun. The roads were terrible. I remember driving, hands 10 and 2, with my face forward, driving like my grandma used to do, and I just so badly wanted a plow truck to come out in front of me and clear the path so I could see where I was going. That made me think of our struggle to see who we are and where we're going in life. Are you clear on your identity? Is God's word clearing the way for you? There are so many lies about our identity. Brothers and sisters, you are not your job. You are not your circumstances. You're not your skills, your successes. You're not your failures. You are not what the world says you are. You're especially not what the adversary says you are. You are not who you say you are. You are who God says you are. God says that you are a chosen race. 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's treasured possession. Does that not floor you? We just talked about 1 John 3 during the worship time. What kind of love is this that we should be called children of God? And so we are. And so we are. Having answered A, who are we? Let's look now at B, what is our purpose? Because who we are shapes how we live. Look there at the last half of verse 9. He gives us a purpose clause. We are these things that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's our purpose as God's people right there. To proclaim the mighty acts and excellencies of our God who called us out of the darkness of sin into his marvelous light of truth and grace. Our purpose is the great commission. We are God's people on God's mission for his glory in making more people his people. We want more people to be God's people. Notice how Peter describes to, he chooses to describe that proclaiming of the gospel. Look at the language there. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Our witnessing is proclaiming just how incredible God is in Christ for our salvation. We're talking about the excellencies of our God when we talk with people. It's like talking about a famous person and how excellent they are at what they do. I am so relishing in the fact that we are in the Super Bowl, my Kansas City Chiefs right now. 20 years, you New Englanders had it, okay? It's our time. I don't know where the Packers ever were, so I'm sorry. I love, Heidi and I love to talk about Kansas City Chiefs football. We love to talk about the excellencies of the athletes. It is so enjoyable to do it, to talk to people. I'm so quick to share that I'm a Kansas City Chiefs fan, for better or worse. However, football players are absolute nobodies in comparison to our God. We live to proclaim Christ's fame to all the nations because there's no one like our God. Our God transforms rebels into worshipers of him. He takes his enemies and he makes them ambassadors. Brothers and sisters, he crushed his only son so that you and I might have life in him. Well, how more excellent could a person be than our God who can do that kind of thing to you and me? How could we not be quick to share the excellencies of our God? In order to answer that question, I think that it's because we sometimes forget what it's like to live in darkness. I think that's one of the reasons I struggle. I forget what it was like to live in darkness. That's why maybe I'm not so quick to share at times. I've gotten used to the light. I've gotten used to being God's chosen, among God's chosen people. I've lost that edge of what it was like to not belong. That might be why Peter reminds us of that in verse 10. If you'd look at it, it says there, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you remember, brothers and sisters, what it used to look like to live in the darkness of sin? Do you remember what it was like to not be among God's people? To, people that, to be people that had received no mercy? Peter here pulls from the rich imagery of the book of Hosea 
He uses this to remind us from where we've come. If you remember the book of, of Hosea, God calls Hosea to marry a prostitute named Gomer. The people of Israel are completely rebellious. And so in order to picture that sin, selfishness, and separation from God, he has Hosea marry Gomer, and they name their first child Lo-Ami, which means not God's people. And they name their second child Lo-Ruhama, which means no mercy. Because of their rejection of God's grace, he says, you're not my people, and there is no mercy for you. That's who we used to be. There was no mercy for us because we lived in sin, selfishness, and separation from God. We rejected his mercy every day of our life. There was nothing for us. There was no hope. But then God saved us. We have become his chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's treasured possession. That's not our name any longer. We're no longer low Ruhama. We're not people that receive no mercy. We are God's people because of God's mercy. He changed our name. He changed our identity. We were once people of darkness. Now we are people of light. Oh, may we never forget where we've come from so that we don't forget our purpose in proclaiming Christ. To go into the darkness and proclaim the excellencies of God so that he might call more people into his marvelous light. Now, some of you are still living in darkness. You are without hope. And you're without God. Your identity, your name is still not God's people. Your name is no mercy. And that's because you've lived rejecting your creator like verse 1 of chapter 2. You've been living in malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander against people. You are a sinner in Adam and you have chosen to show your identity in sin, selfishness, and separation from God. Eternal judgment is your future at this point. Yet I want you to hear that through the preaching of the word, God visits those who have rejected him to show them mercy. If today is still here, you can receive mercy. If you're recognizing your guilt before a holy God, your enslavement to sin, your great need for his mercy, then I want you to know that God is not shut up from you. He wants to save you. Today is the day you can ask for God's mercy. He is more willing than you are. For Christ received no mercy on the cross so that you could. He wants to save you. There's been someone that took no mercy for you that you might receive God's mercy. If he spared not his only son, will he not graciously give you salvation today, dear friend? Come to Christ. Join God's people. Belong here with us and be God's people with us who are proclaiming the excellencies of our merciful and gracious God. This morning, we've looked at how we become God's people. Number two, we've looked at what it means to be God's people, embracing our fourfold identity. 
Number three, I want us to look at being God's people on mission. Because remember, who we are shapes how we live. We've been given a mission. But how do we do that? How do we proclaim the excellencies of God? How do we be zealous for good works? Here's the short answer from Peter. We proclaim the excellencies of God by proclaiming Christ with our love, with our lips, and with our lives. The first one, we proclaim Christ with our love. Look at chapter 1, verse 22 again. We were saved by the gospel to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Our love for each other is missional. What does that look like? It looks like chapter 2, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, we put away malice. We put away that urge to slander, to be hypocritical, to be deceitful in our relationships, to envy one another. That doesn't promote love between each other when we're doing those things. So we put it away so that we can show who we are in our love. We are a family now, and so we act like it. We count more, others more significant than ourselves because Christ humbled himself for us. We put other brothers and sisters before our preferences and our schedules. We no longer count up wrongdoings against one another, but we count it joy to lay down our lives for each other. We love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, and we do that by loving our fellow neighbor in Christ as ourselves. This love is missional, brothers and sisters, because it showcases who we are in Christ. Jesus said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. There's no greater apologetic for our faith. Nothing more powerful for the world to see. Our transformed lives lived in loving community. It shows the world the power of the gospel and the excellencies of God. Who can do this to people like us? Only God can do something as miraculous as this. It makes Christianity compelling to the broken and fractured world around us because they can't produce what's happening here. And then we get the opportunity to say, we didn't produce it either. It was our excellent God who's doing what's in us. Our love makes the gospel visible. The second way we proclaim the excellencies of God is with our lips. People are not saved by simply seeing the gospel in our lives. They will be saved by hearing the gospel when it comes from our mouths. We know the verse well. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. No doubt you guys have heard this many, many times. Hey, go share the gospel. So rather than just tell you to do that and keep browbeating that, I'd like to give you some of the principles I use when I evangelize. Three eyes. Initiate, intercede, and invite. My whole day revolves around that. Initiating, interceding, and inviting. You and I must initiate with the lost. We can't wait for the world to come to us. We have to go to them. Our theology and the Bible teaches, Romans 3, that no one is seeking after God, so we have to seek them. 
we have to initiate with them. We have to initiate conversations, initiate building relationships. Second, we must intercede for them. If someone doesn't see their sin, if they don't see their need of a savior, nothing we say will matter. None of us have the magic words to save anyone. God must save them. So we must be interceding for them. God, allow this relationship to grow. God, allow me to get to the gospel this time, perhaps. God, work in their hearts as I share the good news with them. Because until that happens, our good news is just news to them. They're not floored at it like we are. We're praying that God would put the realization of that great burden on their back like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. We want the people that we're connecting with to be weighed down by their guilt so that they see their need for the cross. We want to be those who jump in and say, it's through the cross of Christ you can be released of all your burdens. We have to intercede that that might happen. And third, we have to invite We need to invite them to know Christ. If you're newer to the faith or you're timid or terrified to share the gospel, invite them to church. Invite them to one of the events we have going on. Maybe invite them over for a meal one time. Maybe just maybe that New Englander will say yes for dinner. Just ask them about their life. Ask them about their spiritual background. Did you grow up going to a faith organization or a church or anything and then just see what God might do through that conversation. Just invite them. Invite them at whatever level you feel comfortable. Now some of us feel very comfortable inviting people to the gospel and in a one-on-one conversation with a stranger they just met. But if you're not that person, just invite them to something you feel comfortable. For those of us who are Willing to do that? Invite them to know the Christ. Don't just simply share the gospel. Ask them what they'd like to do with the gospel. Tell them that they need to respond to this word that you just shared with them. Invite them to know Christ. Initiate, intercede, and invite. We proclaim Christ with our love, our lips, and lastly, our lives. In the rest of 1 Peter, the apostle unpacks how we proclaim Christ with our lives, lived rightly in our communities so that we can impact them. Now next week, we're going to be in Titus chapter 3, which is going to teach us about that, so you'll have to come back for more. But as we close, I want to share one motivation from 1 Peter 2.12. Our conduct in our communities is what impacts the lost. The way we put off sin, show charity, show courtesy to non-believers, how we honor our governing authorities, it stands out to the world around us, the people who are enslaved to passions, full of slander and disrespecting their authorities. But look at verse 12. Peter tells us to keep our conduct among Gentiles honorable. And jumping down, so that we that they might glorify God on the day of visitation. That's what we want right there. We want people to stop exchanging the glory of God for the idols of this world. We want them to believe, be saved, and start blessing our Savior and glorifying Him. 
And Peter says that our lives proclaiming Christ in this honorable living, it, it may just be a powerful reason that someone comes to faith at the hearing of the gospel. It might just be that as someone is wrestling through their sin and guilt, they think of you and they realize, I want what they have. Oh, may we proclaim Christ with our lives so that the lost might glorify God on the day of visitation, that they might believe, be saved, and belong with us. We want them to become part of God's people. Who we are shapes how we live, and this is who we are, brothers and sisters. We proclaim Christ with our love, lips, and lives as his chosen people. May God give us the grace to be clear on who we are, that it may shape how we live as those zealous for good works. Let's pray. God, you have been merciful and gracious to us. May you be continually merciful and gracious. Would you help us to see who we are in Christ more clearly today than we did yesterday, more tomorrow than we did today? that we might be those who live out who we are in this world. Father, thank you for making us your people. Help us to be your people who proclaim the excellencies of Christ with our love, our lips, and our lives. And for those of us here today who are recognizing we aren't, they aren't among God's people, may today be the day they belong as those who've cried out in repentance and faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.